Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Today's guest is Dr. Kimberly Marshall, who is an organist, an organ scholar, holder of the Patricia and Leonard Goldman Endowed Professorship in Organ at Arizona State University. Dr. Marshall is celebrated worldwide for her compelling concerts, masterclasses, and lectures. She is a creative advocate for the King of Instruments in many different contexts. Her expertise in the earliest surviving organ music brought her worldwide renown. In today's amazing conversation, Dr. Marshall will share her insights about the earliest organ music created some 500, 600, and even almost 700 years ago. Let's go to the show. Dr. Marshall, I'm so delighted that uh, we're having this conversation. I was uh, kind of very hesitant to to contact you. I know you are uh, such an uh, authority when it comes about uh, to to earliest organ music and its sources. But you so uh, so uh, so generously responded, and I was so lucky that we we have this conversation finally s- is scheduled, and it it works okay with with the big time difference between between Arizona and Vilnius. And uh, I'm sure people from 89 countries will listen uh, to our talk and will be inspired. Thank you so much and welcome to the show. Well, it's my pleasure, Vidas. Thank you so much for inviting me. Great. I usually start these interviews uh, by asking uh, uh, guests about how they fell in love with the organ. But maybe uh, it's 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 uh, it's great to, to jump right in about uh, earliest organ music how did you come uh, how did you fell in love with the uh, renaissance and uh, late medieval organ music too that's a splendid story do you remember those days oh definitely i remember them as if it was yesterday i was a student at oxford i was working on my uh, phd degree and i was doing research on the history of the organ And as part of that, I was preparing uh, a general history of organ repertoire. And I started investigating the early estampes, the um, motet entabulation, chanson entabulations. And I was just enchanted by this rather strange music. I have to say that one reason I got so involved with the early repertoire at that time was that my advisor, Christopher Page, had just created a group of singers uh, called Gothic Voices, and they were starting to perform a lot of the vocal music uh, with a very new philosophy, where they were singing a cappella without instruments, and they were uh, working very much on the tuning, so that they were tuning in an almost Pythagorean type of, of, of system, which is, of course, what the instruments would have been tuned in. And I was able to hear rehearsals of Gothic Voices in the very early days of the group. Uh, They've gone on to win many, many awards and make many recordings. But I remember sitting in the chapel at New College Oxford, listening to them rehearse and just thinking, ah, this is the most sublime sound. And fortunately, we organists have repertoire that it is arrangements of these songs and motets. And so I was doubly inspired by having the chance to hear those marvelous singers. Fantastic, fantastic, Kimberly. I, um, I can even uh, remember my own experience uh, by playing from your book uh, about late medieval organ music. I was uh, sort of looking uh, for, for a... Uh, the suitable repertoire to demonstrate organ sounds uh, from various periods. And of course, it started very early, um, even in a- ancient Greece, right? Um, right. But, but, but uh, maybe this is a, another period uh, too early for, for our conversation. But I came across to this uh, magnificent uh, source um, by Willy Appel, right? Uh, he, he, yes. He... He published, uh, edited probably the most uh, important uh, collections of earliest uh, 14th century and fi- 15th century organ music. And uh, I 
I was uh, enchanted by that too and uh, uh, the temperaments of course Pythagorean it was so new to my uh, my ears right and um, yeah. I to, to, still to this day I marvel uh, how people are still interested uh, how come people are still interested in the music which was written what some some 700 years ago right isn't that spectacular yeah. It is really amazing. It shows the power of music notation uh, because there are many wonderful traditions of music throughout the world, and uh, some of them claim to go back 700 years. Mm -hmm. But we actually have a notated, uh, several notated sources that give us information about how that music was performed exactly uh, in such a different time period. And of course, I think human beings are generally fascinated with the past, with knowing where we've come from. Sometimes that's with a view towards feeling superior, that we've made all these great improvements. And I sometimes get that um, attitude in my own work. People think the medieval organ was very primitive, and so I need to play these pieces very, very slowly. And <laughs> I get all sorts of different theories, but I really don't think that that's true. I believe much more in a cyclical approach towards music history where uh, different ideas get developed very, very fully, and then there's usually a reaction, a change of aesthetic, and it, therefore we move from the Renaissance to the Baroque, a very change of aesthetic, and, and um, on into the classical period. Again, it, the Baroque ideas were fully, fully developed. They weren't inferior to what came later, just a different approach. And similarly, we have reports of keyboard players in the late medieval period being great virtuosi. I don't think that they were dealing with such primitive instruments that they couldn't impress their listeners, which is, of course, what we all try to do in every time period. Fantastic. And to, to the general um, organ music uh, uh, enthusiasts or, or student or organist uh, in, in, in today's world, Late medieval music um, is sort of very strange and even, let's say, foreign or exotic, right? Uh, yeah. When we talk about early music, of course, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach comes to, to mind, right, as a pinnacle. Mm -hmm. And then, what, Buxtehude, maybe, for the general uh, person, right, uh, who is right. not specialist. And then and then maybe Couperin, maybe a little bit of... of uh, um, what else? Uh, Italians, right? Gabriele Frescobaldi, and then oh, and then a mist, right? Um, like a uh, like a fog uh, <laughs> shrouded right. on uh, on these vast landscapes of the organ, right? But you, exactly. luckily, being an expert in this, can can reveal a little bit, uh, take us into the world uh, um, some seven or six hundred years ago. It was a very different world, right? Can you describe a little bit uh, the context in, of the music um, which was created in those days? How was it different from today? Well, it was very different in that it was primarily based on the intervals of the 4th and the 5th. Um, and, of course, in the 15th century, the 3rd, the interval of the 3rd, became much, much more important. That was referred to as the contenance anglaise, the English consonants. And that really changed music, making it sound more major or minor. These are the um, the tonal systems that, of course, have come down to the present day. But in the 14th and um, first half of the 15th century, certainly, uh, the, the organ music is based much more on these open fifths. And it gives a, a, almost a Gregorian chant-like quality to the music. People think of it as kind of evoking the idea of Gothic cathedrals and the very, very uh, open, hollow type of sound. Mm -hmm. And then when you put that third in it, within the fifth, it immediately becomes more of a major or minor sound. So you get the, the triad, the chords. But the, the music that I am specializing in is often just in two parts with a slow moving tenor line in the left hand and a more ornate decorative treble line in the right hand. And um, this permits all sorts of, uh, of different types of figuration. Uh, that's where you get the real virtuosity of the music. And uh, certainly this is the case in the 14th century. And uh, we have an Italian source 
from the uh, early 15th century, from around 1430, that is also in this texture. Uh, this was found in the library in Faenza in Italy, and I believe you've played some of these pieces right. from the Faenza Codex. And they are also primarily in two voices with the slow-moving part. Uh, the Faenza Codex contains our earliest surviving liturgical music, where the plain song for the Mass is in lo long notes in the left hand, with this very decorative, freely composed upper voice that um, can have some very interesting rhythmic play against the left hand, um, some very ornate writing for the right hand. And then by the time we get to the middle of the 15th century, uh, we're starting to get more three-part pieces uh, that would uh, sometimes have the third added because that influence is starting to come in from England to the continent. So uh, there's a vast variety, really, of, of music. And one thing that I find very interesting is that the three major collections of 14th and 15th century organ music all contain secular as well as more sacred-based music. So it, it, from the very outset, it seems that keyboard players were, were not just playing sacred music for the liturgy, but were also playing dance music, um, music based on popular songs, music that was uh, arranged from the more secular aspects of life in the 14th and 15th centuries. Fantastic! Uh, I can I can even imagine those those dances as tampis uh, being played and danced to in courts, right? Uh, of course, uh, they yeah. of course uh, require different instruments than we have today. Probably, maybe organettos, uh, maybe a little small positives, right? Can you describe a little yeah. bit what kind of instrument is suited best for these earliest sources? Well, it's actually difficult to generalize about that because it seems that these sources may have been written down for practicing organists who were playing different types of instruments. So I don't think there's necessarily any one type of organ that works best for, for all of it. But I think you have to look at the individual works within it. You mentioned the estampi, and um, these are... are written down in two parts so you need an instrument where you can the organist can play with both left and right hands um, so I think that that would have to be a small positive organ but positive what I mean is not an instrument that was carried like not a portative a portable organ but an instrument that would be um, sitting posed on a table or perhaps even even on the floor and therefore, the, it would be pumped by someone else mm -hmm. so that the organist would have both hands free to play. There's no way to play this music um, with, with an organetto because it, it, you can't play it with one hand. However, it's also possible that they might, might have had uh, someone else play another organetto playing the tenor. Who knows? I mean, it's very hard to tell. In that case, though, it would be difficult to explain why the notation is as a score so both parts are written together as if for one person to play so I think most most of this music was probably played on small organs small stationary organs and uh, we have a uh, surviving uh, remnants from an organ in Sweden actually on, on the island of Gotland right. uh, a number of small organs were found They've since been moved to the National History Museum in Stockholm. But they were found on this island that was um, off the southeast coast of Sweden. And a very important trading center it was part of the Hanseatic League. And um, these instruments can tell us a little bit, perhaps, about the type of music uh, or the, the type of organ that would be played. And they were what we call now block fairs. That means to say that, that there were many rows of pipes at octave and fifth levels, but you couldn't separate them out. So they all played all the time. There was no stop separation on these instruments. And they also had pedals, but um, only uh, about seven or eight pedals. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's very interesting is that the pedals seem to control two pipes at a time. So therefore, if you press one pedal, you would get two pipes 
sounding an octave, uh, sorry, a fourth or a fifth apart, which relates to what I said earlier about the whole basis of the music being on those intervals. Mm -hmm. And so it seems that there might have been a tradition of improvising over this foundation of a kind of a drone of a fourth or a fifth. Oh, right. Uh, you're talking probably about the, um, the so-called um, preambulum, but they were called uh, not preambulums at those days, but rather um, uh, redeuntes, right? Uh, uh, well, we have both. Both, we have right? Both redeuntes and preambula, uh -huh. but you're right. There is a difference um, between them that's that's rather important. The redeuntes are, are based on drones. Mm -hmm. Uh, like I just said, they, they, there's a sustained note, and even in the title, it will say Radiuntas Super C or right. Super Me, you know, meaning uh, on, on C or on E. And um, they really feature the imagination of the organist because over a drone, one can do anything, right? <laughs> so it's a, a real uh, key to the type of music they were improvising. The preambula were um, pieces, well, there are two main sources for preambula in the 15th century. The earliest source we have is from 1448, the Illiborg tablature, right. and it contains five preambula, and uh, some of these are based on drones for a while. Um, they're very, very short pieces. They were clearly meant as intonations to prepare uh, maybe singers for a, a certain pitch, and Illiborg even writes that each of them can be transposed to whatever pitch is needed. So that makes it very, very clear that they serve the function of an intonation. But the other source for preambula is the Buxheim Orgelbuch. And here we have really the first attempts at creating organ music without a pre-existing model. Mm -hmm. So there's no uh, plain song, there's no secular chanson, uh, there's really, there's no dance form, and it's very interesting because they aren't really based on drones. Uh, the radiuntas seem to be filling that purpose, and the preambula are written in such a way that they have different textures, and this seems to have been the way that uh, late medieval organists created structure. So there'll be a, a, a section of just one line, and then you'll go into a section where maybe there's three voices playing chords for a while. So that's a homophonic texture. Mm -hmm. And then there might be uh, a section where there's uh, two parts in the treble and a more active voice in the left hand. So it's very interesting how these early preambula were put together. Uh, they can be even sort of guides for improvisation and showing the very earliest genesis of uh, music for the organ. Of course, the uh, tablature of Adam Illeborg that you are referring to sounds still quite exotic to our ears because of these <laughs> open fifths. But just Definitely. what, uh, a few years later, uh, this Buxheimer Orgelbuch appears and boom, we have this continence uh, Angloire right here with three parts, right? Um, what's the date, by the way, of Buxheimer's book? Uh, it's 1452 or... Uh, well, dated and Not that's dated, a bit of a right? problem. Uh, the Illiborg is dated at 1440 uh -huh. but um, we, we uh, think that it's around 1455 something still like that. very very close uh, close time span right? Uh, exactly. Do you know whether the region uh, where they were created uh, is different from Adam Illeborg or, or uh, I know that it's not the uh, North Germany of course Buxheimer it's it's more of a well, different south. south yes right? south. Bavaria area and uh -huh. um, it, it actually is now in the um, Staatsbibliothek in Munich yeah. it was found in Buxheim which is the, uh, the reason for the name and uh, Buxheim is in southern Germany mm -hmm. um, and it, 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 you're right it's very interesting it seems like uh, suddenly Buxheim has more of the, the introduction of the third um, and I think part of that is uh, that Buxheim is a very very large source there are over 260 pieces in it and the ninth fascicle of Buxheim was actually added later. So even though most of Buxheim is probably from around 1455 or something, we think that the last part of it was maybe added um, five, ten years later. And it shows 
more development in that way. And for that section, it's fairly clear that the pedal is playing an octave lower than written. Mm -hmm. uh, Buxheim is one of the first sources to indicate the use of pedal. The Illeborg tablature uh, also indicates the use of pedal. So the Germans were very, very early at incorporating their feet in making music. But um, I think that not all of the Buxheim pieces do have the contenance anglois. It really is much more of a mixture of different styles, um, different degrees of sophistication as well. Uh, it's hard to know why it was compiled um, because it seems like it maybe was a working copy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a presentation copy. Mm -hmm. It's not written in beautiful calligraphy, you know, as if to present for a donor or a patron. But it does have an incredible variety of music. Some of it very, like just two parts, uh, you know, n not, not at all contemporary to what was going on at the time. But then some of it uh, much, much more developed. We even have a, a piece, a curie, a setting of uh, the curie from the mass that is using the pedal consistently as a fourth voice. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, that is exceptional. But it's very forward-looking uh, because, of course, once we get into the 16th century, four-part writing will become the norm for organ music. So, in, in the 15th century, they had a different kind of uh, notation, right? Completely foreign to our ears, eyes at least, right? Uh, and, of yeah. course, scholars like yourself probably are uh, at home with this uh, uh, day and night, probably. But still, uh, for the majority of organists, it's very mysterious. Can you describe a little bit what those tablatures mean and the characters and how to read the rhythms as well? Please. Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, it's very interesting that you bring this up because there are several different notation systems. Mm. Uh, and that's also showing the lack of uh, standardization at this time, but also the difference between national uh, preferences for notating music. So our earliest source is the Robertsbridge Codex. And this was found in a register at Robertsbridge Abbey in England. The it's only two pages of music, but they had been torn out mm -hmm. of what was presumably a much larger music manuscript. And then the, the paper was reused because, of course, paper is valuable. You're not just going to throw it away or recycle it the way we do. They recycled it by using it in another book. And fortunately, someone realized, oh, this is late medieval keyboard tablature. And they have since taken it out of, of that register, and um, now you can see it at the British Library. Now, the notation for that source is a version of what we call Old German organ tablature, where the top voice is written on a staff in staff notation. Uh, it's not like our modern notation, but it is written in symbols where you can see the pitch and the duration of time. From, from the notation. But the left-hand part is written in letters, mm -hmm. just like we might um, you know, teach a child to play the keyboard. This is a C, this is a D, that sort of thing. But those letters are just written kind of underneath, right on the staff sometimes, right underneath the, the note to which presumably they correspond. So it's um, a little bit less clear exactly what the rhythmic, notation of the left hand is in Robert's Bridge Codex. But um, fortunately, I've benefited from a number of scholars who've seen it before, including Billy Apple that you mentioned. And um, I did find one extra note that I think all the previous mm -hmm. scholars missed. It's kind of in the margins, and I'm not sure if they were working for microfilm or what, but um, I was able to make that, that small, Fantastic. I think, improvement. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's, it's very interesting. Now, when we move into the 15th century, we get an important Italian source, the Faenza Codex that we referred to earlier. And this is written in staff notation mm -hmm. on two staves. Mm -hmm. So it's just like we would expect today, uh, except that the, the staffs uh, have more lines and, and there's some little idiosyncrasies uh, of the notation that we're not used to. But it's a uh, score notation. 
uh, with two uh, staves and the right hand on one on the upper and the left hand on the lower in longer notes. Then when we get to Illeborg and Buxheim, we get to the classic version of Old German tablature. And this is uh, basically, I guess, a development from what was used in the Robertsbridge Codex a century earlier. And um, in this case, the top voice is on a staff, and the bottom two voices are beneath the staff. <clears throat> so it's very, very clear. With Robertsbridge, it's sort of hard to read because those letters are just kind of crammed in under the treble notes. <clears throat> but with Buxheim, we have the lower voices written very, very clearly underneath, and they have rhythmic symbols mm -hmm. to show us exactly what the rhythm of those voices is. So there's no question about how they correspond to the treble voice. Whereas in Robert's Bridge, they were just kind of underneath the corresponding voice, and there is room for interpretation there. But with uh, Buxheim, it is a much more sophisticated, evolved type of notation. Right. Uh, so you can see that we spend a lot of time just trying to get into the world. Each of these major sources has a completely different approach to notation and presumably very different organ scene as well. Because, of course, uh, there was no uniform musical instruction, right? And everybody was apprenticing to, to some masters, right? And they have their own system. And uh, today, yes. of course, it's all universalized and uni unified, uh, more or less, in different countries similarly. And people learn only treble and bass clefs, right? But what right. about other clefs? F clefs, uh, uh, three kinds of F clefs, uh, five kinds of C clefs, right? And two <laughs> kinds of G clefs. Is it is it um, worth uh, today for today's organist learning s at least some of them today? That's a really good question because I think some of it depends on uh, the overriding musical tradition. You know, I'm, I've, I've really witnessed this in my lifetime because I remember growing up learning, you know, mu music by Buxtehude or Bach. The um, some of the C clefs were used much more frequently. Um, and now all the additions are just putting everything into treble and bass clef. So they're sort of reflecting the lack of training in that area. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it's hard to say which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Because I think musicians today have to learn so many things. I, I mean, to be, to be versatile, uh, I, I don't think we can necessarily uh, compose string quartets using all those clefs, if, unless we're a composer, you know. And um, I think that so much is demanded of us that maybe it's it's fine not, not to spend a lot of time on those clefs because, as you know, um, it takes a lot of time to develop organ playing and to be able to realize music. I mean, sometimes we're playing four or five parts of music using our hands and our feet. That's already a lot, a lot that it takes. Mm -hmm. And now we're expected to know everything from medieval music to jazz and to you know contemporary works and to multimedia and being able to have our podcasts and our Facebook pages. I mean, there's a lot going on right now. So I don't think spending a lot of time learning to read from those old clefts is that important, quite frankly. From the practical perspective, I think, uh, uh, if I can say uh, my opinion, is, is, is probably... Um, more practical if you are inclined to transpose, you know, because changing right. clefs is very easy way to transpose music, but not many people are interested in transposing, of course, but for uh, improvisers, that's essential, probably, uh, for people who are eager uh, to, to improvise, you know, if from, right. from the theme, and they only change the clefs and not the, uh, the, the position of the notes on the staff, and uh, that's very easy then, but you have to know others, uh, other clefs too. But that's not majority that's of organs. Yeah, that's a very, very good point about transposition. And, you know, um, there are even instruments now, um, I mean, obviously there are synthesizers where you can just 
change the pitch and do all kinds of, of, of interesting things. So I do think every organist really has to carve out their own journey through this amazing world of, of instruments and repertoire that we have. There's just no way that you can be an expert in everything. And um, you have to determine what you're interested in, what you want to contribute to the field, and then develop the techniques necessary. So, you know, that might involve transposition, that might involve reading from a lot of clefs. In my case, that involved learning some very strange notation systems. But um, ultimately, my goal is to make this music accessible Mm -hmm. to people that basically know how to read treble and bass clefs and know how to read modern notation because I'm happy to be the translator, if you will, and do that research. Uh, just to get this music alive again, because there's, uh, as you know, music doesn't exist unless we we make it sound again. And um, I've been very gratified by the response to my publications. People are playing this music all over the world now, <laughs> and um, I, I do classes that uh, try to inspire people and show them different ways that they might incorporate some late medieval music into their recital programs or into their liturgical playing. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. It's it's it's. Uh, on on the other hand, it amazes me how difficult life must have been in those days, where uh, which we are referring to. For example, in uh, in 14th century, imagine blind organists like uh, Francesco Landini, right, playing his organetto, uh, being blind, right. Uh, uh, how did he do that? How did he learn? Or or Konrad Paumann, for example, also. Do you, do you have a theory yeah. like that? Uh, how, how did they learn musical notation and uh, playing of keyboard instruments in those days? Being blind, for example. Well, I don't think they, they were uh, doing notation themselves. Uh, I, right, you know, right, right. I, I, mean, I think it was mainly students and other people trying to preserve the legacy or trying to uh, expand the teaching. It's very interesting that you bring this up because the first published organ music from 1512 was uh, composed by another blind organist, Arnold Schlick. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, why would he even need to publish music and how could he even prepare the publication? But um, he was very, very famous and there was a real demand for this, um, for this knowledge. So I think that there were always people around, students, disciples, you mentioned the apprentice system, people who wanted to, in some ways, uh, document the work of these amazing musicians. And we're so lucky in the 21st century that they did this, because otherwise we would have no indication of what type of music they were playing or composing. Um, I think that being a musician in those days was probably a very great way for a blind person to stay alive. I mean, I think part of it was just a necessity because if you think about it, um, you know, it doesn't really matter if you can see if if you're making amazing music and uh, your entire life really is happening in the sound world since you can't see. It's in some ways maybe a benefit for a musician because you're just so focused on sound all the time. it's a legacy actually that came even into our own day. There were so many French organists that were blind, as you know, and even a school for um, uh, blind uh, young people in France. And I'm not sure if they uh, were drawn to the organ because they were blind or if it was because they were blind, they were great musicians, they were drawn to music and then eventually made their way into the organ. But we have such a history. I'm even thinking now of um, uh, Antonio de Cabazon was blind. Right. And that is the most important published music of the 16th century. But his son published the music, we know in that case. But in the case of Landini, the uh, Florentine uh, organist, or Conrad Palman, we don't have the names of the people that notated their music, right. yeah, prepared it. The Buxheim Orgel book, as you know, has a Palman's entire fundamentum or right. teaching right. method in there, which must have been notated by students or friends or maybe even family members, but we don't have that information. 
another point you bring up, uh, Kimberly, is is Arnold Schlick. Not only he he wrote this beautiful Maria Zart, right? And yes. and this uh, Ascendo at Patria Meum, which you so <laughs> fantastically are playing too. Uh, we will talk about that just in a second. But he also was uh, an author of the first organ builder treatise, right? Can you talk about a little yeah. bit uh, Spiegel uh, of of this uh, treatise? That's it's very fascinating. Yeah, I'll speak about that with pleasure. Um, I've been doing a lot of work on it. I prepared a recording of Schlick's uh, entire um, body of organ music for the 500th anniversary of its publication (laughs) in 2012. Mm -hmm. Amazing to think that 500 years later, we, we can create the earliest published organ music. But you're right, the year before, in 1511, he published a, a, Real, a treatise, uh, he called it the Spiegel, uh, meaning the mirror mm-hmm. of uh, information for organ builders and organists, and it contains um, much practical information about not only what type of sounds or stops you want to have on small and large organs, but also he even includes measurements for how wide the key should be, how high the bench should be, very, very practical things in order to help make in any in new instrument useful and um, adaptable to, to making the best music possible. It's sort of written as a guide maybe to churches that were commissioning organs at that time helping them to avoid certain pitfalls. One of my favorite lines from the Spiegel is when Schlick advises uh, churches not to have too many um, sounds on the organ, too many stops. That He says there's a trend for having lots and lots and lots and lots of stops. Uh, but it's like having um, broth or, or, or soup that has way too much broth and not enough fish in it because he's saying that that you can have a lot a lot of, of, of stops but they don't have any distinctive sound. It's better to have a small instrument or you know a small number of stops but each one of them speaks beautifully than to have uh, a fish stew with all broth and no fish. <laughs> Fantastic. And I think that's great advice 500 years later because we see uh, so many churches wanting to have the biggest organ, the most number of stops. And sometimes you think they aren't even listening because you can add stops and not even hear a difference right, on those. Right. It's just like having, you know, a lot of broth and nothing, no content, right? So I love that uh, advice from Schlick. I think it's still very timely. And 1511, it's the day where, uh, when uh, Blockwerk was fading away, probably, right? Uh, they were adding real organ stops to the systems, right? And uh, his advice was, of course, very relevant. Yes, well, that's very true. I mean, he documents uh, the, the types of organs that he would recommend, and they are full of different types of stops. Uh, it's very, very different from the Blockwerk. Um, now, of course, he was at he- in Heidelberg at the Palatinate Court, so that was a very, uh, I think, sophisticated area, the, uh, the latest developments in organ building, etc. Um, and that's one thing I always need to remember in doing my research, is that often what is documented is the most complex or the most uh, developed for its time. And that doesn't mean that everywhere in Europe at that time uh, there were places with organs like that or places um, with organs capable of playing some of this more complicated music. So I'm always trying to remember that this might represent a very, very specific development, whereas it might not be representative of everything that's going on. And uh, we find this also in, in the sources like Buxheim Orgelbuch. I think that's a mixture of a lot of different things. Some of the music seems rather old-fashioned. Some of it seems very progressive. So uh, always when looking back at historical documents or sources, I think it's important to remember this might not be representative. Just because it survived doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that it reflects large trends. It could be a very, very exceptional circumstance. 
and this uh, Maria Zart fabulous three-part compositions that that is uh, written uh, for both hands and feet, right? Um, isn't that a very wonderful trio? Very early trio, but so complete and uh, even uh, beautifully uh, sounding even today, right? Yes, uh, it, Schlick wrote a number of trio and kind of quartet settings in the music that he published the year after Spiegel. Uh, he entitled that publication of music uh, Tablature of Some Sacred, let's see, um, actually it would be um, uh, more secular and devotional songs. Mm -hmm. There's no liturgical music per se. It's uh, mainly settings of songs such as the Maria Zart that would have been sung um, maybe in the home, maybe in the church as, as part of a, a service to the Virgin Mary, mm -hmm. more devotional songs. And so he published this collection again. It's so interesting how the secular and sacred combine in almost all of these early collections of organ music. And he is using these textures um, that we've come to identify more with the Baroque, you know, the trio. Mm -hmm. And um, he doesn't say exactly how they should be registered. Um, so it's not always clear if you would be playing one hand on each manual and the, the lowest voice with the pedal. But that's certainly possible. I perform Maria Zart uh, in many different contexts. It's possible to play it on one manual with the hands. Or it's possible to play it like a, a Bach trio sonata. And um, I've done that also. It, it works beautifully in the pedal. We know that Schlick advocated a very uh, fine uh, use of pedal. Uh, he, he writes in the Spiegel that good organists should be able to play two and even three parts in the pedal so that they can make complete arrangements of vocal music. Vocal music was an important uh, source for all organists, uh, and often they would just be entabulating that or basically playing all the vocal parts on the organ. And he said, he writes that you need to be able to use the pedal, both feet, and even sometimes two parts in one foot, uh, in order to be able to do that successfully. So that's requiring a very high standard of pedaling. And um, in some of the music <clears throat> that he published, in his tablature, uh, it benefits from using double pedal. Mm -hmm. But that is for the organist to decide. He does not give any indication of how to adapt the music to a specific instrument. So again, you can play the trios in, in different ways, uh, separating out the voices with pedal sometimes or not, uh, as you wish, or as it works best on the instrument. He also has uh, solo lines in the right hand that are accompanied by three voices, three lower voices. So you could choose again, you might want to use a double pedal for two of those voices and then um, just the, the left hand for one. So there's a lot of flexibility in how you realize the musical score. And of course that's what makes organ playing so exciting and interesting. There's always something new and something to explore or discover. Fantastic, and this, of course, leads us to the the grand piece you performing, uh, Ascendo at Patrem Meum, right? Is it for yes. what ten parts? Ten parts. It is. It, it, it's in ten voices oh, in the in the second section. Yeah, this is very interesting because the the piece was not part of Schlick's fifteen twelve publication. Uh, this piece, uh, we believe, was prompted by the visit of the Bishop of Trent to the Heidelberg court. And the Bishop of Trent was an elector for the Holy Roman Emperor. And we think that um, he was at the court uh, for kind of for political reasons. And Schlick wanted to impress upon him what an important composer he was. And we think that Schlick wanted to play the organ for the coronation of Charles V as Holy Roman Emperor. And for this purpose, he composed Ascendo ad Patrum Meum. Now that is the plain song for coronations. Uh, Ascendo ad Patrum Meum, I ascend to my father. Mm -hmm. 
is uh, obviously a reference to Christ going um, back uh, to, to be, you know, with God the Father. And of course, in the same way, when the emperor is crowned, he becomes the representative of, of God on earth in, in, in this system. And um, so Schlick purposely chose that plain song. And then he wrote an amazing setting. It starts off only in two voices. Two voices right. Uh, and then it explodes suddenly into the fullest setting one can imagine, ten voices, which breaks down as six voices in the manuals, in the hands, and four voices in the feet, which means that you're almost always playing thirds in the feet. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, you can't play anything farther than that because uh, your feet might not reach. Um, and I have to be very careful whenever I'm playing it that I'm wearing shoes where uh, uh, arch. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, they don't have to be too high, but just high enough that the arch uh, of my foot can be placed naturally uh, where I don't want a note going on. Um, if I play with really flat shoes, the shoe itself, even if my arch is kind of up, the shoe will press down. <laughs> we, we get a cluster instead of a, a nice open third. But um, it's a very challenging piece to play. And some people have suggested it wasn't really meant for organ um, and that it was meant more as a vocal piece because Schlick also composed some vocal music that he sent to the Bishop of Trent with uh, Ascendo. But the, the leading scholar of Schlick is Stephen Kyle. He actually was a, a colleague of mine uh, when I was studying at Duke University, and he wrote his PhD dissertation on Schlick at Duke University. So we've remained friends and colleagues, and um, I was in constant contact with him when preparing my recording. And he says, no, it really is uh, for organ. Um, you can tell that partly by the spacing of the lower voices because they work perfectly for the feet. Um, and not only that, there's no, there's no text underlay. I mean, because of the, the way it's notated, um, it, it, it wouldn't be clear how to put the, the syllables of the text mm. into the piece. Um, so I feel very vindicated by his expertise that this was intended as an organ piece and, of course, Schlick would have hoped to be playing it himself at the coronation, which unfortunately did not happen. The very, very full texture in that ten-part section is probably Schlick's way of getting the absolute maximum out of the organ. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, you would certainly want the absolute maximum tutti when uh, playing for the Holy Roman Emperor to go down the nave. So I, I think it makes sense. I can't really comment on how winding systems of the time would have coped mm -hmm. because it is a very, very big drain on the wind, especially having those uh, four parts in the pedal. But um, hopefully they would have had a, a lot of calcantin, a lot of bellows blowers for that occasion. <laughs> Uh, now, uh, Kimberly, a lot of people are very envious and very excited at this moment of our conversation, just waiting uh, to find out where they can find this fabulous score of yours that you so graciously prepared, right? Can you lead us into the, uh, maybe give us a link or to your edition and to your website so that people can oh, find sure. your and your work online? I would be uh, delighted to do that. Uh, both of my anthologies, uh, Late Medieval Music and Renaissance Music, are published by Wayne Leopold. And that's um, Leopold Editions. I'll spell that. It's L-E-U-P-O-L-D. And if you just do a search online um, for Leopold Editions, you'll be able to find them. And um, the, there's a Renaissance anthology and a Late Medieval anthology. And uh, it's all my favorite works from those time periods. So a really good overview. I think it's very hard otherwise for uh, organists to, to, to get into this music because you have to have a research library and, and know where things are. And I think this is a really easy way. And then I've also written a lengthy introduction to both of those volumes, trying to give organists 
historical information, as well as uh, ideas for performance practice. So Wayne Leopold editions, both my Renaissance and uh, late medieval anthologies are there. And then my website has all my recordings as well as uh, the, the publications. And that um, is just uh, Kimberly Marshall, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-Y-M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L dot com. So I would welcome any visitors to that site. And um, I also have a special Facebook page uh, where I'm showing different things that I'm doing and what's going on in, in my professional life. Don't worry, it's not all my personal things. <laughs> it's a professional Facebook page, and that's um, Kimberly Marshall Organist. So you do need to put organist because there's some other Kimberly Marshalls in the Facebook world doing some great things, but not the organ. So um, again, I'm at facebook.com, uh, Kimberly Marshall Organist. And that's how you found me, right, Vidas? Right, right, right. So fantastic. Uh, I, I, th- I, I feel that we could f- talk about these things for hours and hours, but uh, of course you have to do some other fantastic things in your day, right, in Arizona. And um, But I do hope that people around the world will get inspired to, uh, to listen to, uh, to your music, to your uh, uh, recordings, and also to, to find out more about your publications also. Because I can testify myself that these, these I, I own both of them, Renaissance and Lane Medieval collections. Uh, not only the, the scores itself, themselves are very very interesting and you can play those uh, those types of music uh, that were pre- previously un- unaccessible probably uh, some of them at least and uh, but you also provide such a great way of uh, uh, information is scholarly but also you present it in such a fr- user friendly way that you don't okay. have to be a Cambridge scholar but uh, but uh, you will understand and you get a glimpse into your world as well so thank you so much uh, Kimberly for your uh, such a generous uh, sharing of ideas I think it's so important in today's world uh, to to, to share things right that you know and uh, people will be inspired to follow your footsteps and maybe get a glimpse into the music that was created five six or even seven hundred years ago and bring it into our world today That's my goal, and I really encourage everyone to try it out. Thanks so much for your interview. I've really enjoyed speaking with you, and we'll stay in touch. Fantastic. Bye-bye. Bye. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog, Secrets of Organ Playing, at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice, and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavichus. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you online really soon.